welcome, 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 welcome to the Gig Stories podcast with me, Alex. And me, Chris. We hope you enjoyed the last episode with the truly wonderful Catherine Williams. I, I, I forgot how much I laughed. She is so funny. It was a real treat, wasn't it? Real treat. Oh, it really was. And, you know, I'm jumping the gun here, but I'm just going to spoil the ending for you all now. We do not mention Shawaddy Waddy in this episode. <laughs> Just mentioned it. Just mentioned it. <laughs> anyway, I've got to uh, give you all thanks uh, for your for your love. You've been uh, tweeting us and messaging us on Facebook and uh, Instagram, and we really appreciate it. We really appreciate you listening. We appreciate your support and looking at the numbers and figures. We are quite a big deal in Hammersmith, Chris. Isn't that right? Hammersmith and Fulham, the um, diagnostics are telling us that um, there's some some real movement down there. (laughs) If you like competition and you don't live in Hammersmith and Fulham, then you better get, wherever you live, get downloading, get listening, get all your friends and family (laughs) to listen to the Kick Stories podcast. And very exciting, especially as we haven't, we haven't given it out on, on the podcast. We've not mentioned anything. No, we haven't. We've had our first email. Way Yes. <laughs> Alison. Alison from somewhere in the world who loved the first episode and, like us, Chris, is absolutely missing live gigs. God, I mean, there's just there's thousands of us, aren't there? Yeah. We are legion. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> ah. She's actually... Um, made a, a guest request yeah a suggestion of who we could possibly think about getting on as a guest and i know you're a genie yeah you know everyone so she, <laughs> she said that she would love tony wright from terrorvision who they were a good laugh they were a good laugh back in the day weren't they i i, I don't know um anything about them recently i don't know if they've been up to anything terrorvision what they're doing if they're still together um i'm gonna check that out i'm gonna have a look yeah and if you're out there tony get in touch get in touch man yeah alison wants you on this podcast and so do we we will move heaven and earth and we will try and get tony on but if anyone else has uh, suggestions for people that they want to hear us talk to um, then please do get in touch. Alex, how can people get in touch with us? Oh, just give me a ring. Just give us a buzz. Yeah, yeah. you've got a number, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, 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 are, we are all over social media. So we've got Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and that's at Gig Stories Pod. There's also the website, which is gigstoriespodcast.com, and you can contact us via there as well. And let me just remind you all that for each episode there's uh, their own web page so if you go on now you can see one about chris and i there's a page uh, for clint clint boone and there's a page for Catherine williams our guests so far and on each page we're putting on a playlist that's relevant um, we're putting on pictures video clips music uh, anything relevant to that um to that interview so we're trying to make you know more of of the podcast it's not just here you can go to the website and get extra content as well but you too like alison can email us and the email address is info at gigstoriespodcast.com so let's hear from you let's hear uh, what you're missing who you're missing 
whether you keep your ticket stubs, send us pictures uh, and we'll put them on the website and on our social media too. Just get in contact and, and let's have some love. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. The one more thing I was going to say was I saw a mate of mine, Kirsty. Um, she framed loads of tickets. Oh, so yes. I don't think she's on Twitter. I th think she's on Facebook and she might be on Instagram, but I will get in contact with Kirsty and I will get permission to share her amazing um, framed tickets because uh, honestly her, her tickets are quite something and um, so if anyone else has got all the tickets framed in a in a picture frame or um, got them displayed in some other way maybe you've pasted them onto a table or you've um, stuck them over the bathroom window or I don't know I mean could happen no absolutely could happen yeah please send them in I'm seeing it I'm seeing it and people have sent me a um, have sent me a few uh, a friend of mine, Sarah, sent me a picture of just this week of, we were at the same gig and we didn't realise, we didn't know each other then. It was the James Lades tour in Newport Centre. Oh my gosh, Chris. Now, listeners as well, if you've listened to all the episodes thus far, I've mentioned Newport Centre an awful lot and I probably will going forward. It's the Leisure Centre in Newport and it's uh, also a venue and it's a place that I spent so much time in in the 90s and saw the band that today's guest plays in. I've seen some wicked gigs and this week we hear it's going to be knocked down. No way! Oh, Alex, man. Yes. Oh, like oh. gutted. Student flats. But what what I will do as well, and this is news yeah. to us as I'm saying this out loud, they found a green book. They call it the green book. And in this green book, and they showed it on Wales Online, uh, which is the, the, the news outlet uh, online, and uh, they've kept this big green book and they've written, handwritten, all the gigs that they've ever had. Bowie, down to today's guest. Ah, oh, it's just... Oh, so Newport Centre, man, absolutely gutted. So if there is anyone that's listening that's been to Newport Centre and you've got photos, you've got ticket stubs, you know, send us pictures. But likewise, from anywhere. Oh, so yes, that was my that was my disappointing... Yeah, downer. Downer, Alex. I know, well, downer. But I'm going to hand over to you so you can make things lighter because today's episode really... Yeah, <laughs> so um, this week's guest is the mighty Rick McMurray, drummer in Ash. So we talk to Rick about um, Ash being oh, rock and roll stars from a high school age. Um, we talk about some quite incredible festival lineups um, they featured in when touring Europe. Um, we talk about their involvement in promoting the 1998 Good Friday referendum with Bono and you too and we also talk about the story behind their last gig before the Europe-wide lockdown and we are thinking that it might have been the last actual mm. gig that took place before everything got shut down do you reckon do you reckon it would, that be? would be amazing it, it's it's possible the only thing that might go against that is a socially distanced gig in Sweden that I remember, but I, I think, but I don't know when that was. So it is possible. It's possible that Ash had the last, you know, the last live gig uh, in Europe before that yeah. first lockdown. Who knows? Well, 
Anyway, we have got a cracking episode. I've not laughed for as long a time as I did when I was listening back to this and <laughs> editing this podcast. It was an absolute hoot. Rick's a gem, and yeah, hope you enjoy it. Here is Rick McMurray. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the next episode of the Gig Stories podcast. And I am really excited today. Chris and I are very excited about this, about this guest. Absolutely. Because I feel like we've grown up together (laughs) (laughs) in so many ways. That 1977 is the year of my birth and um, the album meant a lot to me and my friends at the time and so we are very very uh humbled and lucky to have with us mr rick mcmurray the man who bashes those drums at the back of the stage but on a nice riser though i'm i'm noticing the risers getting taller and taller as the career goes on as the beard gets longer (laughs) (laughs) from ash rick Thank you so, so much for joining us. It it really is a pleasure. Wow, what an intro. I hope it's not all downhill from that point. (laughs) (laughs) You know it's it's okay when my, and I think this is testament to the longevity of your amazing band, when my 14-year-old daughter at tea time this evening says, so dad, who was it you were talking to tonight? And I said, oh, Rick from, from Ash. She went, oh, you are cool. Wow. There you go. There you go. Ooh. Wow. Well, I need that, to say, Rick, when I, when I was uh, at uni, I was in the, the, my first year in Halls and I was doing uh, a, an essay and it must have been late spring in 95 and I had Radio 1 on and I was listening to to whoever it was who did the, the afternoon show in Radio 1 at that time. Um, it could have been, or maybe that could was have a bit been, but I remember, um, I can't remember if it was Girl From Mars that came on, or but they were talking about the gigs that were coming up and Ash were going to be um, playing some some gigs in the summer, but not until um, some of the members of the band had finished their A-levels and I was there doing my... <laughs> and I, I just remember thinking, oh, really? <laughs> you know, after, after I do this, I, I'm going to go back home to the borders and collect glasses for a summer <laughs> but you've got an absolute <laughs> roster of of festivals um so i suppose the, fir- the first question i was going to ask you was uh, around um your first gigs as um a- as a punter and th- the fact that they kind of probably overlapped with your first gigs as a performer <laughs> am i right in saying that Oh dear, we've had our first Zoom glitch and it means that we've missed out on about 15 or 20 seconds of gold from Rick McMurray. And basically he tells us that his first gig was Aerosmith. So you haven't missed anything really. Anyway, on we go. So yeah, when was that? Yeah, that must have been 90... 1990, yeah, so it was a couple of years before 
before I started. That was my first ever. Love in an Elevator tour. Yeah, 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 around that time, yeah. yeah. Of 1990? I think the album came out in ni- 1990. It might have been early 91, the tour. Yeah. Where, where was that gig? It was King's Hall in Belfast, which is like this giant kind of like, I don't know, it's like 5,000 shed kind of thing. Terrible sound, but, you know, first gig. And I was like, you know, I was 15 at the time. Couldn't see anything. It was like, you know, it was just like, could see the symbols and not much else. But yeah, it was like still, what an experience. Who, who did you go with? I went with my brother and a couple of uh, his mates from school. Was that a big deal for you? Were you a massive Aerosmith fan and this was oh. going to be your first big concert? And yes. Yeah, I was huge, huge Aerosmith fan at the time. It was like, yeah, uh, I think I'd been playing guitar for, like I got, got guitar when I was like maybe 11. I got a drum kit, I think when I was 14, maybe. So I was like, like learned, I kind of learned playing drums to Aerosmith. So it was a yeah, massive deal to, to see them. Chris and I have, um, we've spoken about our sort of childhood and musical upbringing. And we both had quite a musical upbringing with our, with our own families, um, which has resulted in me being just not musical at all. I pretend I can play a bass, <laughs> but Chris is, Chris is actually a very good musician as a saxophonist. But we both grew up um, at a very young age going to quite classical concerts and things like that with our parents. What was, what was your sort of musical childhood and upbringing? We, we, were your family musical? My mum played piano. Um, sort of, like, I think when, when I was, I must be really young, probably about seven or eight. Like my mum got a piano. She played as a, as a kid and decided she'd seen like a in a like a, a second hand ad or something like that and wanted to get one. So she <laughs> played a a little bit but like not very often. And I also remember I like my brother went to piano lessons for a bit and then he stopped going. I was like, right, you're going and I remember just like crying, <laughs> like sobbing my eyes out and still being forced to go and like sit sitting at the piano like this. <laughs> you know which is just like beyond hysterical so that was that was my first introduction to like playing an instrument and uh, oh god and that's that's oh, the place you I, need to be when you when you're just learning an instrument for for the first time in a place of tears and <laughs> despair <laughs> i know look, <laughs> why i chose this career is beyond <laughs> and so it's continued uh, for the I next must, 30 years yeah, yeah another another 30 years of punishment on top of yeah. that <laughs> but uh no it was like, like yeah it was kind of weird it, like, i think my parents they didn't have very much music in the house um so it was like i guess it was kind of weird like uh, there was a maybe a couple of albums. I know there was a Billy Connolly record that we weren't allowed to play, but we played anyway. Um, and my dad, for say, had like about four Charlie Pride tips. It's like a country and Western guy in the car. Um, and that was about it really. Um, so, that, so it was quite, so especially live music then, you, you didn't grow up having your parents going, you know, off to concerts or, or, or gigs like that a lot. It was quite a new thing that you were doing then. Yeah, yeah. It was just, I think it was like through like, a, like my brother got into it. Uh, he's like a few few years older older than me. He got into it. His mate had a guitar and stuff and just started getting. I remember I was a babysitter actually who, <laughs> um, 
she was like her, she had, like this really cool boyfriend who had like a, a Vespa and all like a, like uh, like mod parka and stuff like that with like the foxtail in the back of the um, scooter. She 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 come with babysitters and she gives like tips and stuff. There was like the kinks and the who on there. And just I I remember that being the first sort of thing going on. Wow, this is really different. You know, like music that I'd not sort of like heard and top of the pops and stuff that just was like oh wow this is like really kind of paying attention to the whole thing and just getting into it so that was that was a big deal and then my brother's mate who like started going going into our metal phase and um I guess it was like getting into Iron Maiden and stuff like that so, so that then was, after after Aerosmith um as your your initial first gig um did they come thick and fast after that or uh, not particular. I don't think it was like, I guess Northern Ireland in the like early nineties. There were like, oh, it's it felt like it was just like metal bands, or maybe it was just because we only ever bought Kerrang or whatever, which like hadn't even heard, heard like I hadn't even heard of like Enemy or Melody Maker or anything like that until um, Ash was gone. So it was it was all like kind of like metal bands and stuff. Yeah, I think I, I think around about that time I was I was uh, I, I wasn't Kerrang. I think I was Raw. I was buying Raw magazine. You remember that? Remember one? that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Remember that um, one? But yeah, I was, I was a big Rainbow fan, um, and yeah, kind of fell down that that wormhole and um, and really enjoyed being down there for for a good yeah. while. Yeah, I th- we went through that, but I th- I was lucky in Cardiff because there we had we had a quite a big variety. Um, and and I sort of as soon as I got into music press, I had the the whole shebang. But once you left Cardiff, especially as you went into the valleys and the rest of South Wales, and it's still it's still very much like it now. It, it's just it was just heavy metal. It's just Iron yeah. Maiden. I don't know if this is a Gaelic thing, lads. Is it? I'm not really. I'm not yeah. Know here, but it was. Um, yeah, it just seemed like it was only really Cardiff. Uh, and some some people that would come from the valleys uh, to see other genres, but apart from that, it was very heavy metal, heavy uh, in South Wales. It yeah. still is. Still is. I guess. I guess. And I, I guess, like in Belfast, I mean, there was. Like, I don't think there was any any gigs anywhere other than Belfast. I think there was. There's one Antrim Forum. If you wanna, if you wanna hear about the the amazing couple of gigs there, it was like thrash metal central. And I think I never never went to any of them, but I know Megadeth uh, almost started a riot. It's in uh, Dave Mustaine's book. I think he he sort of like asked a few people about like the troubles and stuff like that, and he was like coked off his head and started like oh, no like said said a few things on stage, and there was like a full scale riot and had to be like evacuated. Oh my god, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So were, were there even the were there the venues in in Belfast? Were there? Many oh yeah, no, that's. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I guess the, the smaller venues didn't, like, we weren't really aware of it. I don't know, it was like an age thing or whatever, but I guess there was always the Limelight in Belfast, which was probably the only small venue at that time. And everything else was like, just like, it was like, you know, thousand like Ulster Hall, yeah. which was like 2000 capacity or uh, King's Hall. And that was all I was aware of at that time anyway. So, so this is interesting then, because... Because the band started so young, 
you were very much inspired just by music and, and being in a band. It wasn't like you'd been to live gigs, you'd seen lots of live music and thought, I want to do that. Is that fair enough then? Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, you know, the, the, the big thing, I think, we, I think we all wanted to be in bands. You know, we were, we were all like, even like sort of separately. Tim and Mark grew up like very close from the age of like 11 and they like got guitars for Christmas when they were like 11 years old. And they, they had the idea to start a band before they even learned to play their instruments. Um, but, you know, myself, like separately, not knowing them was like, we we're all kind of into the metal scene. Um, but, and I remember seeing, uh, well, here's one of the, here's one of the, uh, one of the few gigs I saw was actually Tim and Mark playing at school with like, <laughs> with their, their metal band. Their, they, they, they was like, cause they're a couple of years younger than me. Cause I'm 75, not 77, but so right, okay. there was those two guys who were like, they must've been 13, maybe really? 14. And another one of their mates from the same year in school. And then these two older guys who were like, they left school, they were like 19 or something like that. So I, I, don't, I don't know where, I, I don't even ask where they ever found these like older guys to play with. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was like, it was like, it was quite a car crash, I gotta say. <laughs> um, and so how, how long after that was it that, um, that, that you formed Ash then? I wanna say it was maybe, about six months, just over six months, because it was, yeah, it was like a children in need gig. So that must have been November. Mm. And then we formed, we formed in like May, June of the following year. So. And what year do you say? Because in the press and online and stuff, there's, there's a few, there's a couple of different years that it says that Ash formed. Yeah. So we would, we would say from 92, we okay. formed 90, but Tim and Tim and Mark have been playing together. I think it was like, 89 they got like christmas 89 they got guitar so that date might be about might be kicking about there also might be dates kicking about because the record company wanted to do our like best of as the 25th anniversary which wasn't the 25th anniversary it was like <laughs> it was the year that girl from mars it was 25 years since girl from mars so that date's out and that was the tour we were supposed to be doing and now we're going to be doing that tour maybe in the 26th very <laughs> common anniversary after coronavirus. So, how did early gigs um, sound? I, I don't mean in terms of quality. I mean, um, as new bands tend to do probably 70% covers and some new stuff. And so, or did you in your first gigs were they were they all new stuff or what was the kind of the kind of mix? Well, by the time I joined Tim and Mark and we became Ash. Um, those guys have been writing for quite a while and made a whole bunch of stuff but I think because they, they had the idea of starting a band before they could even play they very quickly just started writing their own songs because they were like oh we're not good enough to do cover versions so they were kind of like you know they, they knew a few chords and then it was like right well I guess we're gonna to have to make up our own songs let's write some stuff that we can actually play yeah so like, I think I joined the band it was like I think me and, this is, me and Tim were in a school play and I, I was playing a drunk Russian detective and he was again, like, <laughs> <laughs> he was an itinerant gypsy musician. <laughs> so like, like back, back. Oh, school play. What school play was that? <laughs> well, get this. It was called the suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a Dostoevsky or, or a, 
I don't know. Yeah, it's a Russian. It's a Russian play. I can't remember. Yeah, who no, it rings them. a bell. It rings yeah, a bell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that's so dark. Weird. That's dark for yeah. what fourteen? Were nine years old. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think I was. I think I must have been. I was fifteen, sixteen at the time. Maybe I think Tim was fifteen. So. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Uh, That's I was in Toad to Toad Hall at sixteen. That's very really different. Yeah. Very I was different. in Bugsy Malone. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want, yeah, talking like that's just like, I guess our our school English teachers are really cool because like, one of them he was the one who did the suicide was with me and Tim met, and the other one was this guy called David Park, um, who's actually pub he's published novelist now. Like after we left school, he started like we got a publishing deal, put out a bunch of novels. Are really cool, but he actually would. He heard Tim was forming a band, actually gave Tim like the Undertones first record and gave him like the Clash and stuff like that, and really encouraged him. Excellent, no way, it's songwriting. So, yeah, our, our English teachers were kind of quite instrumental in the band, I guess. It's, it's, it's funny, I think, when uh, um, you know, when I was blowing smoke at your backside, I think, I think it, well, I know it's true. And I think Ash felt very different for me and, our, and my friends because you were so relatable. Because when yeah. we went to your gigs, and even, um, even I saw you at Newport Centre, and we'll get onto that. I wasn't on stage looking at people a lot of years older than me. You know, I wasn't seeing, you know, you know my elders. It was your peers. And I felt, I felt that in the crowd. Uh, uh, Ash gigs, I very much felt like, yeah, they're one of us more than any other band. More than yeah, any yeah, other absolutely. Band. Yeah, we totally one of we, us. Yeah, we to totally got that feeling on that tour as well. I mean, um, especially on that uh, tour in '96, just after 1977, we had tons of young kids going like, "You're the first cool band that I've ever got into." You know, it's like I went to see, you know, like take that or you know, boys Zone or something like that last yeah. year. No, no, it's like I finally discovered music and yeah. That's exactly, and that's exactly right. It's exactly. Yeah. Right. And I can't remember, obviously that's all, that's, that's very circumstantial, isn't it? It just depends on your yeah. age. And I just happen to be that yeah. kind of age, but there was, you were very down to earth though, the three of you. Um, you yeah. know, one of my favorites uh, are the Mannix. And even if I was exactly their age, I'm not sure I would still feel that because there was very much a, you know, they were very theatrical, weren't they? Um, yeah. But whereas you guys, you j I just felt, yeah, I could do that. Clearly I can't, rubbish. But we felt like we were right behind you from the off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that's, you know, the difference between, you know, other bands who are a few years older, you kind of like mm. sort of look, look up to them. But this was just like, we were like on a level playing field with the audience there was like very little divide between that and you know i think we've, we've got a lot of fans from that time who you know remain like very inspired and it was like sort of like you know i think a lot of people whatever they were doing in life were like you know it's like you guys can do it i can sort of like do kind of whatever i want and sort of like almost sort of give people the, the belief in doing what they what they wanted to do and, and i wonder now it's it, it's just coming to me now as I think about it and as I think about the times. And, and again, J uh, Chris and I, we, lit we, went, we went so many gigs. We've bo we're both geeks, basically, Rick, and we found out that we both got scrapbooks where we've kept our ticket stubs. Yeah. And, 
and it, it is quite pathetic, but we love it. We love our yeah. Mickey, don't we, Chris? And so we, we were seeing everyone. But as I was just thinking about it then, I think it's because at that time, you, the three of you, I think there was a real punk aesthetic to it in the middle of, there was a lot of electro going on, wasn't there? You know, we had, we had the Chemical Brothers and the Prodigy going crazy. Yeah. And then with the Britpop, which I still don't, I still don't like that word. And I, yeah. uh, Who does? And I, I wouldn't even, call, I wouldn't even call, I wouldn't call Ash Britpop. Britpop, even though I love so many of the bands that are, are called that, there seemed to be a very musical artsy side to it. But I think with you, with a three piece coming out, it, it appeals to all my, my love of punk. And it just seemed really pure and, and sort of, you know, rock and roll. It, even though you, you then listen back to some of the singles and it's, you, you have some of the most gorgeous melodies. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I think yeah. it's that, that raw punk aesthetic live. Is, is, that, is that something you, the three of you realised that, hang on, we have got something different to everyone going on here. Yeah. I mean, we always felt like, you know, I guess, you know, we'd like to a certain extent, we had like sort of like a toe dipped in the Brit pop kind of world. Cause we were like produced by Owen Morris, who's obviously got that massive Oasis connect connection and, and the good verve record. Um, so yeah. Good. <laughs> 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 it registered and then I was just like I was like I'm just gonna let that settle I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more <laughs> history is well history is the one that I love but um yeah. is that the one that you mean yeah 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 good yeah. <laughs> good yeah and that's they, you know that's we we actually uh met Owen started working with Owen like during downtime on that album which was like it was like it was kind of chaos because like the band had like almost split up and like throwing like chairs through like studio windows at each other and stuff like that. So they'd gone yeah, home. No, no, this is the verb. So they'd gone home oh, for the verb, sorry, right? They, they, they'd taken a break over Christmas um, <laughs> to, to go get themselves together. So Owen was like in the studio. It was like, yeah, just come in and use that gear. So that's uh, that's when we recorded like Kung Fu and Angel Interceptor. So wow. it was like a. a, a pretty pretty nuts weekend <laughs> yeah but it sounds like the, the but, uh, grown-ups then entered the, the the studio rather than the the kids chucking the, the yeah furniture through the windows my god yeah. oh. did yeah. you this is see this is quite different because we um uh, and throughout the podcast we'll be speaking to all kinds of people um but we spoke recently to clint boone from the oh yeah Earth, and he had a long life of go into gigs, you know, before he even started gigging himself. But uh, I get the feeling, and I sort of expected this, because you were all so young, starting the band, that most of your live gig experiences will be from the stage, as opposed to a punter. Were you able to go to gigs as a punter from the mid-90s on? Or did you just feel too self-conscious, or you just got hassled, or... Or, or were you actually just fed up and you you were you had enough of live gigs just playing? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, I cannot believe that that 
answer came from this this guest that we're going to be speaking to you that i think <laughs> i might be able to ask them about it because they won't have a clue I yeah know. no i mean yeah <laughs> I, I can't really pull any out of my mouth. I mean, when we were hanging out in London, a lot of times, like the other guys lived in London. And I'd, I'd sort of go over and i hang out with our, our, I'd, with our sound engineer quite a bit. Um, I actually sort of lived with him for, for a little while, like when I was over in London for like a couple of weeks at a time. But we, were, you still out, based, were you still based in Northern Ireland then? I was, yeah, yeah. And the, but the other two were already in London, were they? They moved to London. So when I was over, I was like, go out to gigs. So the like, sound engineer was doing another band. I'd go out and like, hang out and sort of, like go to like somewhere like the garage or like a tiny gig in in Camden, but yeah, we were just drunk all the time, so I don't really remember. Maybe that. you should have uh, kept your gig tickets. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I wish. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think drinking and traveling makes you, well it's made me a very messy person anyway so I, <laughs> I don't i don't tend to collect anything right that's like my my wife who's like massive music fan uh like she's got like a she had them all like free she'd put them together in this like big board with like perspex over it of all her like gig tickets from the 90s and stuff are you serious yeah 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 she you, it's been nice speaking to you rick the yeah shall I, shall I go yeah. get her <laughs> So were you, I don't know if you can even answer this, from a, live, from a live point of view, were you inspired at all by those many artists that were playing around you in the mid to late 90s? Were there some that you just were like, these are brilliant? Yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, it's, a, it's a, a kind of weird one when you, I guess we, we didn't like, go to as many gigs because we started as you said at such a yeah. young age but yeah. there's sort of like a, a feeling of like sort of inspired I remember like on the tour where you're talking about seeing us in Newport I remember we had 60 foot dolls absolutely they were a great great live band they but, deserved to be a lot bigger they were yeah absolutely really were you a big fan Chris yeah yeah but I, I saw them support low I, I don't think I saw them on the yeah, headlining but I, I, I felt like I'd, I'd seen them, you know, five or six times in support and, and on the, they did the enemy brat tour with Marion and Skunk and Nancy and, um, oh, with Marion's, and uh, Baruch Skunk Assault. And Nancy, yes, of course. Um, but yeah, they were, yeah. they were knockout, really knockout. Yeah. Band. They, they were your support, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think they, they kind of had that aggression and kind of like energy that we did, but I think it was a lot more controlled than we were, you know, they were like, yeah kind of kind of knew what they were doing as we were just sort of like <laughs> kind of like learning it as we were going along yeah. but it's yeah it's like it's funny listening back to like early recordings from that because we like a few years ago we put out um a live album um, just by ourselves called live live and mars which was like from the end of the 1977 tour where we did like five mm. nights at the historia yeah and that is just like kind of listening back to that now i'm just like like jaws on the floor is like how did I play that fast? I know. Well, I was what? listening to the one you did uh, <laughs> uh, in Japan, the live the live album. Oh yeah, yeah, that's. Uh... And you know they're all like ten or twenty beats per minute faster than than the record. It's boggling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it. It took us a long time to calm down from that. Yeah, but yeah, we. They, yeah, I guess it was. It was for like several years around that thing it was probably probably like 
2004 we kind of like sort of settled into having a pace but everything was like proper like Ramones intensity. That's so funny because I I wish I knew what the set list list was in 96 but you were the headline act and I'm wondering if the gig even lasted longer than 40 minutes now because you're right there was that you were very different on record to how you were live. Live it was as you said that, Chris, yeah, you were faster. It was more frenetic. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I was saying to Alex before we, we, we came on, um, I suppose the difference between you and the, the kind of bands that have been lumped in with the, the Britpop umbrella um, is that the, the influences there sounded like they were kind of the Kinks and the Beatles and all that kind of stuff, which is, yeah. which is fine. But with you guys, it sounded like it was a lot more American. It sounded, uh, and I was saying to Alex, the Sonics were the, were the band that really kind of made me think of you. Uh-huh. And, and also a, a bit laterally as well, the Lemonheads, because they had, they had that, you know, that real kind of two minute, three minute songs. I mean, it's a shame about Ray. I think that was about 31 minutes long, that whole album. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, were they influences or, or that, that kind of, Lemonheads de- def- definitely were. I mean, I think the the thing, you know, like just to sort of rewind to back in the uh, like the garage at Tim's house was um, the thing that kind of changed things around was Dravana. I mean, that was like sort of like it was the first first band that we kind of heard that had the energy that we wanted, but sort of like gave us the permission to not have to like play a million notes at once or, mm. you know, or, or try and sound like Iron Maiden. It was just like, this is like super basic compared to all the metal stuff it's just like you know four chords yeah. and, a mel- and a melody and uh, an attitude towards it and that was like that was like right game on we can try and copy this and make a make our own approximation of it and sort of like I, I remember sort of around that time it was just as I joined the band as well it was like another band who played at that high school gig who were like the cool kids who were like into mud honey and like all yeah. the, the whole Seattle scene who I like kind of saw like Tim and Mark's old band is a bit of a joke. Like I, I remember them seeing us and going like, wow, you guys are good. What happened? <laughs> you know, it was like, but it was like, yeah, it was just like, I, I guess it was, you know, just sort of kind of trimming, trimming the fat and, you know. Nirvana were responsible for a lot of, awful bands too because again they as you say you nailed it with that they made you think we can all start a band which is yeah. which is sort of similar to what clint boom was saying when he his very first gig by the way was phenomenal um was uh sex pistols the clash they did that same thing didn't they though they you get these bands that come along in a generation that make you think they're totally inspiring but make you think yeah, I can do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's you know, it just takes takes one band like that to just like pump up a whole generation. But yeah. I guess you know that 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 changed things for us massively. But I also think like Tim, I don't know where he gets it from. He has he has this gift for for melody. You know, we do have that that total like punk punk kind of like you know Seattle kind of background. But his his sort of like ear for a tune is just I don't know that's, that's one thing that's kept us going all these years yeah and also also a kind of a melody that um, that can be slightly skewed as well so Goldfinger for example where there's that yes whoa okay and first time it takes you have to tune your ear in and then you're expecting it the next time yeah 
Yeah, that's a it's um it's an interesting song that one. So it's one that I think a lot of songwriters kind of will will sort of pull out. I remember we we toured with Weezer uh, in I guess well, yeah, it was the end of '96, and uh, oh, River. Man. What yeah. a tour that must have been. That was over. That was over in the states, wasn't it? Yeah, we did like four weeks with them in uh, in in America, and yeah, they were they were in a, they're kind of in a funny place at that time. There was sort of a lot of tension. So Rivers ended up like hanging out with us. He didn't want to be in his own dressing room, but he would always like talk to Tim, Tim about Goldfinger's going like, how do you how do you write a song like with with those like those chords are just like they shouldn't work, but they're brilliant. They're, they're amazing. And he was like, you know, I I try to write stuff like that, but it just never comes out. And it always turns into this, you know, like very kind of like safe, you know, it's like you're one, four, five or whatever, or it's like, it's all kind of logical and musical theory behind its sound, but like, this is just fascinating to me, so. Am I making this up, but did, didn't you win an Ivan Novello at one stage? We did, that was uh, for Shining Lights, it was a few years afterwards. Shining Lights, right. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was golf. I remember we were talking about golf and I was thinking, if I remember that right? Okay, that was for Shining, oh, that's another belter, isn't it? Yeah, well, we should have won one for Goldfinger as well. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And in fact, as a compliment, and we'll get back onto the life stuff now, I remember get, uh, my friend giving me the Petrol EP and hearing, and that the Petrol is still, is still my favourite. It's still my favourite. I love it. And I remember hearing it and thinking, I love this because it sounds like sugar. Oh, now, yeah, yeah. I loved Sugar. I've not listened to them for a long time, but that was sort of the best compliment I could I could pay you. I heard this and just thought, "Oh man, what is this? Who are these? Who are these guys?" And then, who are these kids? I find out, you know. Yeah. So I've listened quite quite a quite a bit to Petrol recently, just like going through old like Peel sessions. Yeah, yeah. Because we might be putting something out for some some day to do the records. Um, but but yeah, it was. Uh, it was just crazy because it was like totally like kind of listening to like Tim had sort of put together all his like sort of favorites and like took a couple of lists and just sort of like instantly transported back to you know, being at Maidavale and recording that. I remember him like the like lead guitar line on it. I remember him like just coming up with that in the studio as we were like doing the session and just like I was just like, oh, we could sort of play back then. I don't know what happened sort of a few years after that where he lost control of all the temp tempos and things went crazy, but it was just like <laughs> pleasantly surprised that we sounded all right. We're going to do a quick fire round just now. Okay. Now, I'm realising, though, Chris, that this could be interesting because Rick has admitted that his memory is, you know, nearly as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can say then, you can answer these questions. I think, well, you'll have to answer these questions as a musician as opposed to a punter. So this okay. is, you know, you behind those drums. Um, but uh, what was the last gig? The last gig you played or... Um... I mean, you can answer the last gig you went to as a punter, but um, but yeah, last gig. I think the the last gig I played was in Stavanger in Norway, um, which was the day after they'd announced that it was a worldwide pandemic, which was, uh, so it was like, 
I think at least half the people who bought tickets didn't show up and the audience was like standing sort of way back and stuff, which was like a total contrast to the night before we, we played in Bergen in Norway, mm. um, which was the day that Norway brought in restrictions. But I think because of the way the Nor Norwegian government works, like each area had different restrictions going on. So it's very, I think it's very sort of like, I don't know, like federal system they got there. So in Bergen, it was like, everyone needs one meter space. So we were playing in this club that we absolutely love called the Hulan. We haven't played there in like over 10 years. And uh, it was sold out and it was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then the promoter was like, uh, we need everyone to have one meter space tonight. No. Otherwise, otherwise uh, it, it's, it's probably not going to happen. I said, we he said, we can go ahead with this gig, but I might get arrested. <laughs> and he wow. was like, He's like, we're the only gig in town, so someone will show up. So he was either we can cancel the gig or we can move it to the big venue down the street, which we think we played like a few years, like years before. It was like, so we went, we were like, we just finished sound checking at this point as well. So it was like, we were about to go out, go out to get something to eat. And it's like, right, should we uh, move to the other gig then? It's like packed up the whole bus and like down the street, re-sound checking everything. Are you kidding? Yeah, now this is totally totally true like, oh my they had like, like tv crews turning up to like do vox pops for people going like how do you feel about being at this gig and stuff but it was amazing because we felt like total heroes we've gone like you know <laughs> you know turned turned around this gig and like you know in an hour and a half packing up setting up and then like on stage an hour after that so we, we <laughs> felt like total heroes i kind of wish that was the last one but unfortunately unfortunately not you're roadies the hats off yeah Heroes, their tour manager's a legend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the listeners, <laughs> uh, Rick was the tour manager. <laughs> How did Brilliant. they manage the gig? How did they manage the meter spacing? Well, it, it was like the, the room that we, we ended up moving to was like four times the capacity. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a problem at all. But I, 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 I don't think people particularly paid any heat it was just yeah, that there, no there had to be that space there was a, i don't think it was anyone policing it but yeah other, other than self-policing but yeah it was okay next one uh, loudest gig oh possibly mogwai i think um i saw Mog mogwai at the usher hall a few years ago and yeah i mean that's it usher hall is a great venue it can be quite a boomy room but you know yeah. especially you know when those guys get in there and just like when they when they hit that peak yeah. it was just like bleeding although although i haven't said that i just remembered acdc when i was a kid seeing acdc again at the king's hall and uh you this saw was, acdc at the king's hall yeah in belfast this was this must have been 91 maybe it was just after i think it was in south america a couple of kids had died because of a crush at, yes, at, at an acdc concert so it was me and my me and my cousin went, I remember my brother, like it was before I, would, I could drive, so my brother dropped us off at the gig and he was going like, don't go up the front. And we got there, it was like uh, another, it was King's X who we were into at the time. Well, anyway, they, they were supporting and me and my cousin got in, it was just like, should we go up the front? So you kind of walk, because there, was, there wasn't much of a crush, there's plenty of space, so we get up and then there was like a barrier, kind of like a an extra barrier, you know, like they have at festivals, like a crush barrier, yeah. and extra just to take the pressure off the front. We were like, 
guys gave us wristbands we were in. It's like, okay, I guess we could stay here. So we were, we were actually stood under the cannons that come out no for, for those about to rock. And it was just yeah. like, just the, the air pressure, the change in air pressure was just like, it was such a physical, like, it was absolutely crazy. But hmm. Mogwai, I guess, were pretty close. And um, what's your what's your favourite ever gig? Um, and I'll, uh, yeah, two answers: one as a punter and one as a, a performer. Um, as a punter, it's got to be the Cramps, which was wow, somewhere in Portugal in a bull ring. It was like what? it was a, it was the weirdest lineup. It was like I don't know if we were it was it was suicidal tendencies, Ash, and the Cramps. I think it was just. That I think was just, the lineup. I think so. I think I can't remember if we were on before suicidal tendencies, but I think we were like bang in the middle. <laughs> but because uh, I, I I didn't really know anything about the cramps at that point, so it was just like I had no, no sort of like expectations. I was just sort of going out, going out front. I was like, I knew the logo and stuff. I never, I don't think I'd ever heard a single song, and I was just like transfixed from yeah. it. It's just just like that primal. Rock and roll is just, you know, there's something about it. And just as, as a performance, like they finished in Surfing Bird, which was about 20 minutes long. And it was, <laughs> it was just like, it was just the song. And then it was them just like playing that riff for 18 minutes while Lux Interior, it got microphone stand after microphone stand from the side of the stage with like a big heavy round bass on it. I was just smashing it, smashing it into the floor. It was like a, it was like a, it was like a festival stage where he's like smashing the microphone into the stage and then like take the, the stand, the pole part, and just like wrapping it around the other one and go and get another one. He did it like, five, he did it for like fifteen minutes. So we were just like watching this, going like, wow, this is insane. And then he dropped through the stage, the band stopped, <laughs> and it was just like, wow, that's how you end a show. So we, we went up and st- we went up the stage afterwards, and the size of the hole was so tiny. It was it was like about the size of my leg. How you get through that hole, I don't know. So he dropped through a hole in the stage that he had made himself. Yeah. <laughs> that is the best thing ever. That was so it. good. I love that. That's excellent. My God, I, I, love, I love stuff like that. I love stuff like that. That's why live, live performance is just the best, man. It's actually, it's reminded me of another gig we did, like just talking about awkward lineups. Was, uh, I think it was, yes. uh, this was in 96. So this was, uh, we were playing in Leipzig in Germany. It was like festival, kind of festival. It was like Bowie headlining and oh, Iggy, wow. but as Bowie who refuses to go on stage after Iggy. So guess who gets the job of like going in the middle slot? Yeah, <laughs> us. <laughs> really? No way. Yeah. So I remember go, going out and watching Iggy, and it was just like, wow, just you know, him like throwing himself around like it's like lunatic. And then we we played played afterwards this like stone cold audience. But uh, it was it was it was a tough one. But yeah, we got. That's the question I haven't got down. But was that the hardest gig? There's probably been a few a few others harder. But is there one that stands out? I think I think that one at least we played all right. There's been a few like complete car crashes with just like stuff breaking down and like 
fall, falling off. I remember the last time I got hammered before we played was in Vancouver in uh, 1995. Whereas I, I was so drunk, I fell off the drum stool twice. I was like, right, I'm, I'm not drinking before a gig. Mm. <laughs> yeah. In 95, but, and what would you have been, 20? 20, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, with Rick. With Rick, Rick <laughs> I like that. I like that. Have any of you ever walked off in the middle of a gig and not finished? Mm, don't think so. Or, or stopped because of some reason. Yeah, oh, there was a gig we did, and I think it was Hampton Bridge a couple of summers ago, and it was so hot. I and me and Mark were quite sort of hungover, so it was like, I think we ended up, there was like, we had to go out to the fire escape just to get some air, because it was just like, couldn't, we basically couldn't breathe. It was so hot, but it was only, it was only for like a, a minute or so. But. What's that called, Chris? The Trade Hall, isn't it? Trades Club. Trades Club, yeah, yeah. It's a hell of a building, though, isn't it? It's cool, yeah. But in the summer, it's like it's right up in the loft as well. It's like really sunny, sunny day. It was just so hot. Hang on, we're talking about playing to crowds. How was it playing to a Robbie Williams audience? Because you were playing again. I, my memory, I say my memory's rubbish, but I do remember other stuff. When you opening for him in like stadiums? Yeah, well, he did the Nebworth shows, and we did um, Murrayfield in Edinburgh, and we did. We, I, we, did, we did Murrayfield like twice in a quite short space of time. So we did the Robbie show and then we ended up, it might've been like a year or two years afterwards, we supported Chili Peppers there, which that, oh, wow. that, that was like, I think if we'd been a couple of years younger, that would have been a total car crash. Cause there was like, we didn't even get a line check because the Chili Peppers had played in like Dublin the night before. So they uh, they got all the sh- stuff shipped over and ferry was lit and stuff. So basically they finished sound checking, doors open. We were just like put our stuff on stage, plugged in and just kind of hoped for the best. No um, way. And it was like, yeah, it was just like the most insane, like st- I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> but but it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a tough show, but I think we got away with it. From a, from a technical point of view, when something like that happens, especially with the sound, as a band... Are all ears on you as the drummer? I don't think. I, I think at the best of times, no one's on me in this band anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. Was that Ringo yeah. Starr or Rick McMurray? Uh, <laughs> if, it, if it was someone else, it wasn't deliberate. <laughs> I'm taking that one as my own, but yeah. Joking. I'm joking. yeah I think. I think. Um, yeah. I think there's there's a couple there's at least two people in the band with very um, forceful opinions of what the tempo should be, <laughs> <laughs> and neither of them are the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. You you mentioned there um, Hebden Bridge, and that uh, I think that brings us on to venues. And uh, Chris and I, we both have our favourite venue. Um, mine is Club Ivo Bach, which is uh, known as the Welsh Club in Cardiff, smaller venue. I think Newport Centre comes a close second, not because of the venue it is, I think more 
nostalgia for me. And then Chris, yours is the Barrowlands. The Barrowlands, yeah, Barrowlands, and yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 just for for many different reasons, for being a punter, being a photographer there, being um, being an extra there. I was saying to Alex the other the other week, I was a, an extra in Taggart. Um, <laughs> what was um, where there had there had literally been a murder on the dance floor. Um, <laughs> and, um, so, what what would you say was your favorite favorite venue? You um, can choose one. Oh yeah, can you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, it's got to be the Astoria. Yeah, London. Be- because yeah. of that five night stand, or uh, just um, because of a co- an accumulation of of good memories. Yeah, well, there's the Five Nights stand, but we played there like so many times, like just an mm. insane amount, amount of times. It was like we called it the Ashtoria. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm still, you know, still gutted that's um, no longer with it. So, um, yeah, such a, such a great place. What was it about the Astoria? I think it was just our London show. I, th- I don't know. It was just like it kind of felt like family. We knew like a lot of people, everyone that worked there. We played there so much, and uh, yeah, it was just like I guess you know the Five Nights Stand was a big part of it. But I think yeah, it's just like sort of like memorable. Get something about being on that stage as well. It feels like it feels like a lot smaller than it actually is as well because that balcony is like huge, but it's really close to the stage. It's really kind of kind of widescreen and stuff. But I was going to ask in venues. Uh... Uh, it's different because I mean my wife teaches actors and she was an actor and uh, it's different she she has a couple of theatres that she's she's played and it's different because it's not amplified but there are some sort of like um, York Theatre Royal she played there and the acoustics were so good that you could hear yourself instantly from the the sound bouncing off the back wall coming back back again (laughs) and I'm just wondering because you're using because you've you've got your monitors can you sense the acoustics in a venue uh, is that a thing yeah yeah i mean i guess maybe not so much the acoustics in the venue but you get the the, the stage acoustics can be quite different depending they can be similar to the rest of the room or they can be quite different and you know it depends on like whether you've got like uh, like a hollow stage or like this or or not hollow or whether it's carpeted or whatever, or even the, the, yeah, to a certain extent, the room will affect that as well. So yeah, yeah, that can be, can be a, can be a thing. Are there venues then that you were aware of that you always used to think, oh, the sound here is just really poor? Yeah, I I think I couldn't name them right now, but if I walked in, I would instantly remember, it's like, oh yeah, I remember the last time we were here, I had real trouble hearing my snare drum. Right. Okay. This is always, always, always a thing for me. If it, if it doesn't sound like loud enough, I end up kind of like overplaying it, and it yeah. can uh, kind of throw things off. So, mm. yeah. the Astoria. It's it's funny that a lot of bands mention the Astoria, and again, my beloved Mannix. Um, you know, everyone quotes their Holy Bible gig in the Astoria, where it turned into a massive pillow fight. Bizarrely, um, they always say that the Astoria was, you know, their favorite venue. Yeah. And so I always wanted to go and never thought I was going to get there. And then randomly, I, not randomly, purposefully, I entered a lot of competitions because when you 2 released Beautiful Day, they played two fan club gigs. One they in did? And one in the Astoria in London. Oh, were you there as well? I was there. Me too. I won a, you were there? Yeah. Oh, 
No. Oh, yeah, of course you would have. You, you were probably best mates with Bono by then, weren't you? I don't, I, we played with him at that point. I think we were sort of best mates. So we were hanging out with him around. We, we got in, yeah. yeah. No way. So you, <clears throat> the security on it, and this was like in the early days of the internet. This was dial-up internet as well. And I remember um, making, I entered the competition and I, I created emails for my whole family. My family didn't even have emails then. And, um, uh, and I won it through my sister's email and it was really tight security. And Chris, it was hilarious, right? We stood in the Astoria and there's, there was, I remember Chris Evans was up in the balcony with Billy Piper. They'd just gotten together and he got abuse the whole night. Really? Then I'm looking behind me. Oh, so there's Mick Jagger there. And oh, look, oh, there's Salman Rushdie. And there, <laughs> it was bonkers. Do you remember that night, Rick? Yeah, I think, I think the, 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 my standout memory for that gig is that they played their first, they played their first single. I remember my, our manager turning to me going like, yeah, at least Jack Names the Planet had some melody to it. <laughs> <laughs> His quote, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that definitely tickled me. <laughs> we we got to pick up on it. Sorry, Chris, I'm, I'm going on you, but you, you, we've now mentioned the magic words, you two and Bono. Because <laughs> actually, from a really, from an absolutely respectful uh, and admirable point of view, um, you guys were very much involved um, with the Good Friday Agreement Day, was it the vote or the actual Agreement Day? It was, the, it was just before the vote. Was it just before the vote? Yeah, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, we'd, we'd been sort of, we were quite out of it at the time, because we were actually recording um, our Nuclear Science follow-up to 1977. We were in the studio, so we didn't really have that much of an idea like what was going on in Northern Ireland in terms of the, the sort of like the atmosphere and what way things were going. But we like, when Bono got in touch, he was saying that, you know, it was like the, uh, the no campaign had like, you know, kind of like grabbed all the headlines and the whole reason he wanted to do it was to try and, cause it was, it was just like, it was all negative. And him and John Hume had got together and was like, we need to do something to try and, you know, capture a bit of the limelight from the no camp and sort of like push. Nice. Push, try and push this thing through because they thought it was like you know this is going to be dead in the water if it continues this way so it was a very hastily arranged thing it was like can you guys do this or of course yeah we're so they approached you then yeah yeah it was they, they want they you know like it was john human bono's idea to do it and i think they got david Crim david trimble to agree to sort of same time as this like, kind of like thing they'd never done before. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they wanted like a band to represent Northern Ireland as well. So like you, you two from the South and, and us from the North and sort of like older generation, younger generation thing as well. So yeah, we were like, right, let's get a, get a tour bus to the studio. We'll come up. And as we were like driving up overnight, like Bono, I think he'd had a few at that point, but it was like sort of like arguing with Tim over which, which songs we were going to cover. And stuff like that because he wanted to do give peace a chance and tim's going like no it's way too cheesy um so <clears throat> ended ended isaac right isaac right I'll, I'll call you back and like, drove on a bit and then a, a, an hour later a few drinks later he's like right we'll do uh, uh don't let me down which we ended up agreeing on 
for that. But yeah, I mean, that was like, well, what an intense day that was. It was just like, I don't really remember much of it. I just know it was just a big, it was a media world, it was like a world's media. Was that an easy decision for you guys? Because yeah, it, it was, was it? Because, you know, yeah. some, some bands uh, don't, don't want to mix music and politics. And, but for, for you guys, that was, that was something important to do. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, musically, we, we kind of, like, didn't really, like, the troubles didn't really inform any of our, like, songwriting choices. Yeah. Um, because we we very much, you know, we grew up in the thick of it, like, well, not quite in the thick of it, but, you know, it was like, it was, we were born into the troubles. It was yeah with, with us every day, you know, we just, like, on the news every night and, I suppose on that day you you would have had to have your music head on, but also if you are being you know badgered by the press as well, you got to have your kind of political head on as well and have to kind of you know a bit of a head mess of that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just it was just like you know we we used to sort of like to a certain extent used to the media having like number one album stuff like that. We knew like what a head melter that was, but this was like. You know, this this is you too, and this is you know future of the peace process, and this is like, you know, CNN, you know, BBC six o'clock news. It's just like it's a completely different level. So it was just, I don't I don't really remember much about it. I we didn't really have very much rehearsal time either. I think we did quick run throughs of stuff with you two in the dressing room before, like I think it was after our gig and before they played. I just have to ask about. What what is Bono like? I don't like salacious gossip, but come on, you two, uh, and I'm a fan. So let me just say, I'm a fan of you yeah. two. I've grown up taking a lot of stick for that. I still do. But um, what was that like? Was it, could you just tell that they were a different beast? That they were something something else? No, they they seemed like just like another band to me. It was it was weird. It was just like you know, it's like this is you two. It's like but they were just like. They were very kind of approachable, funny. Yeah, there's really that was that was that was the that was the weird thing about them, but yeah. Um and Bono. Cause I think he's easily <laughs> he's easily picked on, isn't he, Bono? But yeah, I he is, but you know, I I was I was a fan as well when I was younger. I remember like I got it got into them sort of like towards the end of the Joshua tree phase, but really Okay. Get in, I saw them saw them live on the Zuropa tour. Yes, me which too. Is, yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I thought that was that was great because like, they'd gone from this like kind of like very serious, you know, very political to really kind of just like playing with everything. It was just like a completely different band. I thought it was like that's great, baby. Yeah, that's yeah, baby. great. That's probably my my best gig ever was Zoo TV tour in in the National Stadium, Cardiff. It was yeah. just it was unreal. But uh, yeah, you know, it's like Bono, like we've met him a few. Well, you know, we 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 saw my story in Twitter that we, we shan't mention any further here. But you know, oh. he's... <laughs> he called, did he call you? He called you the c word. He did, yeah. Oh, it's a part. <laughs> in jest, <laughs> in jest, was he, or did he actually mean that he thought you were a total? He was sort of. Human. He was kind of laughing as he said, <laughs> but he thought. <laughs> It, it was kind of laughing as he shot me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like it, it was at the it was at the NME Awards, and uh, 
as I was sort of sat at the table, just wasn't talking to anyone, sort of looked around and just like Bono sat down like at his table right behind us. And I was like, hey, all right, how's it going? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, not too bad. Huh? Like, what do you say? What do you say to Bono? I was like, oh, okay, congratulations on the number two thing. <laughs> To, to which he laughed and said, F off, you see. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think he thought that I was taking the piss, but I wasn't because we, I think, I was, because uh, I, I, I put this story up on Twitter because we ended up, we, we did a, there's like a, I think it's a serious FM, XM radio thing in the States. We did a, they, they've started like a, a U2 show on there or something. So they, they were interviewing bands that have played with them and stuff. And we, we did it. And I, I used this as a, as a platform to tell my great story about how Bono called me a C. So, <laughs> which I enjoy telling, but, you know. That's a lovely passive-aggressive compliment yeah. you paid there, though. That was, that was a yeah. Yeah. But I think... I think it was the same week that Shining Light went, that charted as well, and it went in at number 10. So when he was like, because he, he thought, I was like, you know, I was like, I was like well, you know, I'd take number two. And he, and he was like, like he, he, did, he did see the funny side of it. But he's all right. You know, so we, we played with them like, well, we played with them since, so he obviously wasn't that offended. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, we've uh, yeah, seen him a few times. He's always, you know, he always you know, committed, like any time we played with him, he's always like come into the dressing room just to say, to say hi and, you know, say thanks for playing with them and stuff. He's always been. That's just, good. They get uh, they get a lot of quite a, get, quite a gentleman, really. They get a lot of stick, but I I I think he's done more good than not in his in his personal life, maybe. And uh, I I just think they've become one of those bands that are easy to pick off. You know, yeah, by the uh, by the cool kids. Yeah, they, they, I think I think they were kind of always that way. Like even when when I first got into them, I remember like. Enemy were always just, just like reeling on them, but you know. I think yeah, I think the the music press had sort of sided with um, Echo and the Bunny Men early doors, hadn't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, very early doors. Anyway, um, we'll do another couple of quick questions. Um, who do sure. you wish you had seen live but you didn't, and then it was too late? I think I t- I uh, I'd have met in a band who who said I've I've got a ticket for the O2 for Led Zeppelin. I was like, uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going somewhere else with my girlfriend. We're not together anymore. Oh God! Right. <laughs> listeners, the, the silence, the silence there, listeners, and yeah. the face of me and Chris. Then I, I don't even know what to, uh, you carry on. Well, no, I, w- I was going to say that I, I know someone who can top that, uh, a, a fellow drummer um, who I, I interviewed and photographed for my my. Um, photography project of drummers and so I interviewed and photographed Clem Cattini and he was he was doing so much session work in the 50s and well in the 60s especially um, he had he had roadies for his session work so he had his his roadies who were taking the the kits to various different studios so he could do you know two or three sessions in a day and he was doing so much and they were trying to get this bunch of session musicians in to be an established band. And Jimmy Page was doing loads of session work and they got Robert Plant in and they contacted Clem to say, do you want to be in this band? And he said, I just don't have time. 
I've I've got too much on. I'm I'm doing all this session work and just and so they got John Bonham instead. Shut <laughs> wow. up, Clem was no, the so original. Clem, Clem just didn't have have time to be in Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Can you imagine that? He <laughs> needs to have a T-shirt. I didn't have time to be in Led Zeppelin. I mean, he's really philosophical about it, and you know, he's he he was like, well, I, I made the right decision because I was I was you know I you know I don't know what that would have done to me and um, I ended up working with loads of different people and became the, the house drummer on top of the pops for several years and all this kind of stuff but wow Rick just tr- try and make this a bit better do you do you regret not taking that ticket to see Led Zeppelin uh, I don't know I'm a massive massive Led Zeppelin fan I absolutely love Led Zeppelin but I mean Jason Bonham's brilliant but it's, yeah, it's, it's not. not. It's not Led Zeppelin. It's just yeah. not Led Zeppelin. I mean, that's fair enough. I like Led Zeppelin. So, I like Led Zeppelin so much. I don't even really like the records, to the point where their their live shows and all the stuff you can find on YouTube, it's just insane. Like, like so. The, their their best stuff was like live live shows are just like the desk tips from it are just nuts. Yeah, I mean. They are. They're, they're know, brilliant. What they what they did in the studio wasn't. It's was just like where they took it after they re- recorded and released it was just just phenomenal. It's just like different every night. You know, just no one, no one can touch that. No, I think that's what I think that's what Keith Moon was trying to do with the Who, wasn't he? But <laughs> I don't think yeah, quite I, I, yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone else was following particularly. <laughs> no, no, I love I love watching footage of him. I mean, it's just ah, oh, it's just phenomenal. The 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 famous clip where he's flagging, and he's you know mid gig, and he's flagging, oh, yeah. flagging, and his roadie climbs climbs on the stage just, and then just stabs him in the leg with a with a needle. Go back off, and it was a um, and I still can't work this out, and I'm absolutely prepared and to be corrected, but I'm almost sure that it was a gorilla sedative, and apparently that that was something that would keep Keith Moon going. Now, if it's supposed to sedate a gorilla, I'm not really sure what's going on in. in <laughs> but anyway, his his. His, his drum roadie would always have syringes of stuff at the go. And it's funny because if you look back at the footage, you see, you, you see him climb on and just boom, stab Keith Moon. And I mean, we're talking 30 seconds, but, but, but oh, he's back. Keith Moon yeah. is back in the room and he's playing. Um, did you ever have needles to get you through a particular gig? No, don't answer that. We won't go there. We won't go there. No, no, I, no, I haven't. I'm <laughs> sure I've seen Tim turn around mid-gig. Rick, do you need to top up? Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it wasn't a gig, but I did sort of forget how to play drums once. <laughs> Yeah, you, we can't leave that there. Well, we can, and that would probably be the best thing to do. I, I would just leave it hanging. Go on, Italian <laughs> no, job. It? It's an Italian job. Just leave the bus <laughs> on the edge of the cliff. <laughs> where, where was this, Rick? <laughs> this was um, was 2012, I think. Um, we were in the past eight years. I think. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, we. I think it was the first gig. First gig of the run. 
uh, which was headlining a uh, festival in Guildford. Uh, the, oh. the night night before we were in the rehearsal rooms, we'd rehearsed the stuff. We're all get, getting in the van. Tour manager was going to drop us off. I uh, was just about to close the door and the tour manager says, oh, Mike, who's my brother, um, who was drum teching for, for us at the time. He was like, did you grab a bottle of vodka? He's like, no. He goes, go, go grab it. I was, I was like, we're not going to need a bottle of vodka. It's, it's like the night after rehearsal. No one's going to be drinking. I'll probably have a couple of pints at the hotel bar maximum. Went and had a couple of pints at the hotel bar. Fast forward to bar shutting. Jimmy and opened the door to get the bottle of vodka. Like, <laughs> and then I, like, the next, mor- next morning, we're, uh, we were doing a sound check actually at XFM because we were doing a session at XFM the morning after the Guildford show. So we're like sound checking and getting ready. And uh, the, drum, the drums are in this like, little separate booth with glass so I can see through the glass the two and more. And I'm just absolute stit. I was like, right, let's like, run through a song. And I was just like, my brain's like, my brain's firing off the signal, but my body isn't reacting. And I can, I can see the look in Tim and Mark's face through the glass. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, keep trying to play. And it's still, but they keep going. So I have to keep going. It's just like, and I just like throw the sticks down and just have like a nervous break. That's the last time I quit drinking for almost a year. Wow. Was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't you touch a drum. Have you ever thrown up on your kit? No, I haven't. <laughs> you, sound, you sound surprised. <laughs> Have you ever thrown up on CBBS? <laughs> no, but I feel bad. Someone did email in and complain that because um, I looked hung over. And I know exactly what it was. I was actually teetotal through CBeebies. And um, we just had our youngest and she was a nightmare. She didn't sleep, just didn't sleep at all. And it was during Wimbledon. And I actually fell asleep during a link. We were doing a link about Andy Murray and Wimbledon. And I'm sat where they, in the story corner, in the, in the window. And I just remember gone and just trying my best to get through because I was so tired but then some bugger emailed saying Alex was definitely uh, <laughs> definitely hung over on CBeebs and I'm like oh no that was really <laughs> upset but anyway yeah. may, as well, <laughs> may as well start drinking at that point yeah, I'd yeah. love to do that on the bedtime stories I felt uh, speaking of falling asleep on the falling asleep on the job um, I fell asleep adding, watching a gig once standing up and I think it was it was the the Sonics in in New York because um, like Tim Tim and Mark um, uh, well Tim lived in New York up until earlier on this year actually for about from like 2006 until 2020 um, lived in New York we had a studio over there so like any time we've been recording in that period it's always been oh yeah you've been in New in York. New York so it's like I got to the studio in New York it's like. And the Sonics were playing at like 11 o'clock at night. So in the studio, like getting set up. And Tim's like, oh, I've, got, I've got guest list to go and see the Sonics. And it's like, it's like, okay, I'm tired, but yeah, go on then. I was just like watching them and it's just like, it was like really good. And then it just like 
suddenly feels like I'm a bit tired and suddenly felt myself falling forward. <laughs> and I sort of stumbled and was just like, oh, I actually fell asleep watching the Sonics. My God, I think you might be the only person who's ever fallen asleep watching the Sonics. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Serendipity there that, you know, Chris, you mentioned the Sonics earlier on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. My, yeah. my favourite sleeper was uh, not the Britpop band, but um, <laughs> I was on the left field tour leftism for the for the first album and someone was out of it against the bass bin and i just Whoa. thought that person's gonna die and i just remember yeah. people trying to think someone needs to move that person because their head is going to explode yeah, anyway we've come to the final we like to finish the um we like to finish the podcast with live album or live track recommendations because we both as well we both love to listen to recorded live music and um ash you've actually got you know a few live albums there's not many not many bands who release a live album something something that you like about that is that rick you you like a as a band that you like uh releasing live live stuff yeah, I, th- I think they're, they're great documents. Like going back to what I was saying about that li- Live and Mars thing, it's just like it's a real kind of window into like who we were, who we were as a band at the time. And it's just like kind of listen to it going like, just, you know, it's like how, like, how did we play like that? Why did we play like that? But, you know, it's like that was just like, I guess it goes back to like right, right at the start of this when you're talking about, you know, there's like no, there, it didn't felt, felt like there wasn't a division between us and the audience. And yeah. I get, we felt that as a band as well, that just like, like I've seen like footage of crowds from like the Astoria or like a- any gig in that tour. It was just like, you, the, the marsh pit in that was just insane. It was just like the amount of energy in that room. And we'd, we'd feed off that and the crowd would feed off us. And it just kind of, it just turned into this just absolute frenzy and you know to be kind of like, part of that effort every night was amazing and you know it's like so like live stuff from back then and I, I really have you know it's like technically you know it's like it's not the it's not a polished performance but just the, the absolute energy that we we had back then is well, yeah i mean it is what it is insane. At, that, yeah. at that time it, it is what it is and uh, yeah yeah like you said it's a, it's a great document and i think i think just as, as well it's like I, I think music's just polished to within an inch of its life these days oh, yeah. as well. Do you know what I mean? It's like to the point where it's all, almost, I like listening to bands who are just doing like, the early, early recordings. It's just like all the mistakes and just like the character mm. that that puts into it is just mm. brilliant. You know, it's like from a, you know, from a technical point of view, maybe they're not the best players or the technically the sound isn't great, but there's a, there's a real character and uniqueness and, you know, I just I hope that's something that never gets lost. You know, even with with all the production equipment that we we got these days. You know, it's like we've got a studio in in this laptop, but you know, there's something to, something to be said about that sort of like visceral kind of reality to music. Mm. I I I I hate to repeat myself, but I I've mentioned this to to, to Chris before. But something something that I always loved about the Manics and that really attracted me first first off was hearing the songs and even in the early days, even in the early recordings, I suppose, but especially once once Motorcycle Emptis and that first album came out, 
it was produced within an inch of its life. And there's so many layers and strings. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And then you saw them live and gosh, you know, they ripped your face off. James Dean Bradfield's just hammered it. I mean, oh yeah, we know that Richie wasn't plugged in most of the time. And then you've got Nikki on the bass, but live, it couldn't be any more different. And I loved that sort of almost dissonance. I loved that live, mm. I knew I was getting just raw punk. But then, you know, on, on record, beautiful sort of lush melodies and was that something that you were aware of yourselves as a band that you wanted there to be a difference between live and and recorded um i don't know if we wanted it i don't it was it, it, was, it took us a long time to sort of control it i think there's, there's still we still have that i think we still have that energy but we control it a lot better but it's just like we yeah. we we weren't experienced enough to control it, but I think that's part of the charm of those early recordings. I think I think we we kind of want, we kind of wanted to sound like the record, but you know it's like I think looking back on it these days, I'm glad we didn't because that it's just who we were at the time, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's nice to see that that sort of growth as well uh, yeah. as a band over the years. Yeah, I I, I like to think we've retained something of that 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 energy level yeah i i think so i haven't uh, seen you uh, in the past few years definitely um but there's still you know still a maturity but you've still got that sort of energy and i don't know if that's just me as you know a 40 something hoping for days gone by but i still i still got that nostalgia so to to sort of finish with what we were saying then we'd like you to end by recommending a live album for us and we shall if we haven't or even if we have we shall all go away and, and have a listen and the listeners can, can have a go so what what do you do you have a lot of live albums that you listen to of artists yeah um i think one one that i've rediscovered uh, during lockdown and uh, after after quitting the booze i had to fill that massive hole with uh, with running <laughs> nice. so I started, I started getting into running and uh, I think what I put on uh, If You Want Blood by ACDC I started running to that that was just like wow that's that's a live band that's just uh, what, a, what a great record like again you know it's like that they, they were very, such a unique band it's almost you know, musically they're kind of harking back to the 50s you know like it's yeah. real kind of Chuck Berry-ish stuff going on. But, you know, it's it really fits in with the punk thing as well, just that the, the energy they have in that record. Uh, which I think it was recorded in Glasgow, that record, actually. Was it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I looked, it, looked it up on Wikipedia. I can't remember the... the I think it was uh, Glasgow Apollo, maybe. So you're, is that the album you're going to go with? Yeah. Is that going to be your recommendation? Definitely, yeah. Is there a track on the album that you would you would put on first? Um, I, generally, I'd, I'd listen to it the whole way through. But I was go, I was go, if I was going to pick a, a song for for you guys, it'd probably be Problem Child. Problem Child. Yeah. We'll bang it on. There's something about those. There's something about that band. And there's um, on YouTube. There's really good 
HD footage of one of their gigs from South America, I think it's River Plate. And they play into what looks like a million people. And my kids watch it with me over and over because they just can't get over the energy in the crowd. And it's the biggest crowd I think I've ever seen anywhere. And, you know, when they play, you know, Back in Black, when it kicks in, that crowd go crazy. And they still, at their age, they still have that, that energy. And I'm sure you will too, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you, thank you very much for joining us, Rick. It's been a real, a real treat um, sharing, sharing an hour or so with you. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much. You should do it every Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. It's a date. Rick McMurray, what a gem. <laughs> that, that was brilliant. It was an absolute scream, that, wasn't it? As a, as a big U2 fan, the fact that he was called a beautifully rude word by Bono is amazing. Well, actually, I don't know. If it, if it happened to me, I don't know if I'd laugh or cry. Actually, I'd probably cry. <laughs> I really love you, Bono. I really love you. <laughs> but um, he had some great anecdotes, didn't he? That was great. I loved. I mean, the the one about the cramps, um, <laughs> that was something straight out of a Buster Keaton film. Yeah, it was knockout. It's the fact that he said when they got on the stage that the hole was tiny. <laughs> yeah, the size of one of his thighs. <laughs> Love it. And he managed to slip through that. Oh, that was brilliant. And I just, I just want to repeat again. I, I clearly remember the the atmosphere of those early ash gigs and the, the crowd where you mentioned the mosh pit in your story and i remember at newport center you know that uh, may now be knocked down um i just remember how how amazing it was it was just so good it was like yeah. you were in their gang yeah absolutely and i remember seeing them at tea in the park and uh, and yeah the mosh pit inside a tea in the park inside the massive tent oh a tea in the park mosh pit was a sight to behold i have to tell you yeah um, I, I missed it it was fueled fueled only by buckfast and buckfast. Uh, and and beef monster munch <laughs> <laughs> that was it all the bees <laughs> yeah buckfast and and beef monster munch um yeah Absolutely, all the all the major food groups covered there. <laughs> no, <laughs> what I was I was going to talk about next week's episode, but now I just want to quiz you about your Monster Munch flavour. <laughs> um, so we are we've been so lucky because we've now had three episodes with three wonderful musicians, but we're not just going to be speaking to musicians. Oh no! Oh no! 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 Oh, no, no, no. Um, we are going to be speaking to um, promoters. We're going to be speaking to festival organisers. We're going to be speaking to DJs, but also we're just going to be speaking to punters, people like, like us and um, people who um, enjoy the live music experience. And we're going to talk about their favourite gigs and um, worst gigs and all the, all the same questions that we're asking to everyone, really. And next week is the first of such episodes. And if you think I'm going to tell you right now who that is, you have another think coming. 
I know, because you are mean. I will just say, though, it's one for all the family. Oh, that's a nice little cryptic clue. Yeah, one for all the family. I think people will be able to join some dots to make a picture of who they think it might be. No, because you're, you're, you're misleading people. You know what people are like now. We're going to have messages uh, saying, is Mr. Tumble coming on or something? No. We can, we can say that it's not going to be <laughs> Mr. Tumble. Or is it? No, it's not. Or is it? No, it's really, it's really not. <laughs> or is it? No, it's not. <laughs> no. This could go on all day. <laughs> no, it can't. <laughs> yes, it can. <laughs> yeah. Keep your eye out on, uh, on our socials, on social media, and in a few days, we will announce that guest, as always. And a reminder that we put a playlist on the, webs- uh, on the website, gigstoriespodcast.com, and uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send us those emails, messages, and join in the fun. And... We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.